1: Hello and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 52 Two Dynasties at Once. In this episode, we experience a situation that has not occurred since the height of the First Intermediate Period. Egypt is divided between two competing kingdoms, and the kings who should have ruled a united country are now sidelined in their own lands. We will meet the new upstart kingdom that caused this disruption and also the powerful officials who undermined and weakened the traditional power of the king. Today's episode is brought to you by James and Natalia, in gratitude for their support of the podcast. Remember, if you think the show is worth a dollar or two, head on over to Podcast.com where you can make a donation via PayPal. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. The year is 1700 BCE, and Egypt is at a crossroads. Its middle kingdom, a period of 200 stable, prosperous, and powerful years, have ended. In their place, a series of weak and short-lived kings is on the throne. They come and go every three to four years, meaning that the government has little opportunity to settle into a genuinely stable situation. Although the crops are still bountiful and people aren't suffering, the political and military situation was difficult. Egypt was weak, and it's really their good fortune that for about 90 years, between 1786 and 1700, there was no one to challenge the Egyptians in their power. But then things changed. The period of stability ended with a strange event, when people living in the Nile Delta suddenly rebelled against their rulers. They established a new state with its own king, and began to manage their affairs without consulting the old government who still lived in Ichthawi. With a single flourish, the country was divided in two, and 300 years of unity were ended. So, what happened? This is a tough question to answer. You and I happen to be living in a time where this particular moment of history is being completely re-examined. All kinds of archaeological material have been showing up in the last few decades, and this has led scholars to question everything that was traditionally assumed. It'll be a couple more decades before Egyptologists reach a new consensus. So, we are having to make a mix of traditional narratives and newer evidence. For those of you who are interested, I am following the chronology of a particular Egyptologist. Manfred Bietak has spent decades excavating in the Delta and, for my money, has the most convincing story of the whole period. What you hear today is based mostly on his version. During the 12th dynasty, foreign settlers had been moving to Egypt in huge numbers. These people had largely come from Syria, Palestine, and Israel, the area we generally call Canaan. They came in times of peace as immigrants, and times of war as captives, they settled in towns and villages up and down the eastern edge of the delta, and some of them even made their way into the southern communities of Egypt. We have met them in previous episodes. These people, whom are referred to simply as Canaanites, seem to have adjusted to Egyptian life fairly quickly, and by the year 1700, they formed a substantial portion of the delta population. They lived in their own distinct suburbs, where their houses, which are built differently from the Egyptian style, are dominant. Their pottery is everywhere, their tools show up frequently, and their graves provide just enough information to give us an idea of what Canaanite Egyptian society looked like. They seem to have lived in tight-knit communities, which were dominated by a single family or household. We can tell this because Canaanite suburbs often feature one particularly large house, surrounded by smaller homes and residences. At a very basic level, this kind of archaeology tells us that there was a hierarchy among them, and that status or power tended to concentrate in the hands of one family. In a single community, there might be two or three of these families. But every general little area of Canaanite society had its major players. So they were big on family, and big on their traditions. After all, they had moved to a whole new country, but still preserved most of the features of their old way of life. The Canaanites buried themselves differently from the Egyptians. Bodies were interred lying on their side in a fetal position, which is quite different from the Egyptian habit of lying the body on its back. They were also buried with their traditional Canaanite pots and weapons of foreign design. The truly wealthy and powerful were buried accompanied by donkeys, skeletons of which have been discovered. This seems to have been a status symbol throughout Palestine, Syria, and even Mesopotamia. The Canaanites must have imported this practice when they settled, and retained it even over the course of centuries. This tells us that their heritage and traditional lifestyle was extremely important to them and they did not make themselves at home by simply abandoning what their ancestors had done. Canaanites also did not bury themselves in large cemeteries away from the village. Instead, the deceased were buried underneath their houses. For archaeologists, this means that you don't get the luxury of choosing cemetery or village. If you're excavating one, you're excavating both. For the Egyptians, this community must have seemed very unusual. But they probably weren't too much of an issue. Although at the best of times Egyptians could be politically xenophobic, they were, ironically, pretty tolerant of foreigners living in their midst. The Canaanites seemed to have lived in their own neighbourhoods, so the Egyptians might have seen them as a bit weird, but not exactly intrusive. They did their thing, how they wanted to do it and as long as it stayed in their suburb, then no harm, no foul. In fact, the Egyptians seem to have accepted them in quite a surprising degree. Canaanites soon became members of the royal administration itself, and the main community of Canaanites, at a place called Avaris, was home to a major Egyptian royal palace. Here, Canaanites working on behalf of the king would ensure that trade routes with Sinai, Palestine, and Syria were maintained. And so they basically participated in the Egyptian monarchy. So, why the rebellion? If Canaanites were included in the Egyptian administration, welcomed in Egyptian towns, and allowed to preserve their own customs, what reason did they have for the dangerous course of revolt? The answer is a sad one. Around 1700, the Delta was struck by a famine, followed by plague. Locals were buried in mass graves, thrown into pits with no ceremony or care. Their skeletons lie atop one another, contorted, providing cold testimony to a cataclysm that must have hit the population hard. This chaos was, for my money, probably the biggest catalyst for the rebellion that occurred in 1700. It is not hard to guess how locals might have felt about the whole situation. Clearly, the king in Ichitawi, protector of order and stability, was not fulfilling his functions. His government, far away to the south, didn't seem to have the ability or interest to help. The delta was on its own. When they recognised this, the locals took matters into their own hands, and the kingdom was declared sometime around 1700 they chose a leader from among the Canaanites and he became the first king of a new dynasty dynasty 14 dynasty 14 runs pretty much at the same time as the second half of dynasty 13 so in a sense egypt is divided between two competing royal households although this isn't quite as complicated as you might expect it does mean that our chronology at this point is a complete mess at any rate This new dynasty established itself quickly, and we know the name of its first king. This man was named Yakbim. Yakbim spelled his name in hieroglyphs, but the name itself is not Egyptian. It is a Semitic name from Canaan, and his decision to use it tells us right away that the political authority of the Delta was focused on the immigrant population, with an Egyptian twist. This accumulation of political power probably stemmed from the Canaanites' involvement in that older Egyptian government. By managing affairs on behalf of the king, generations of officials had obtained the skills that were necessary to administer a large territory. Even more importantly, they would have gained the social connections throughout the countryside that allowed them to rule it and keep it in a state of peace. So Yaqbim inherited a country that was ready for his rule and he had access to all of the tools necessary for a stable government. His first order of business, then, was to solve the agricultural catastrophe sweeping the delta. Fortunately, the solution was simple. He and his subjects would construct a major new temple in their capital city. They would dedicate this temple to the relevant fertility and rain gods, and with a bit of charm, they could convince the powers that be to restore the ecological balance. To this end, the Delta peoples began work on what was to be the largest temple commissioned in this era. They chose as their site, and by default the new capital of the kingdom, the town of Avaris, which is located on the far eastern edge of the Delta. This meant it was perfectly situated at the halfway point between southern Egypt and the land of Syria-Palestine. This reflected the mixed-race nature of the Delta kingdom, and gave them access to the riches of both regions. They would not squander the opportunity. The new temple was not dedicated to one god, or even two. It was dedicated to four. Even more impressively, it was dedicated to four gods of mixed race, two from Egypt and two from Canaan. The Egyptian gods were Hathor and Seth, whom we have met previously. I'll come back to them in a second. The Canaanite gods were folks we have not yet met, and their names were Asherah and Baal-Hedad. Asherah, like Hathor, was a mother goddess and a patron of fertility. She could protect women in times of childbirth and help ensure that the crops bloomed at the correct time. When worshipped in tandem with Hathor, Asherah could provide a great deal of aid to a people suffering from hardship, hunger and disease. Baal-Hadad, meanwhile, was a counterpart to the Egyptian Seth. He was a god of storms, rain, and wind, and his help would be needed if the crops were to receive enough water. After all, the mere fact that there was a famine suggests that the Nile was not flooding high enough, and the crops were not being properly fertilized. So, when in doubt, bring in the rain god. Put these four gods together and you have a community showing an extreme obsession with fertility, rainfall, and growth. In order to overcome an environmental catastrophe for which they had no easy solution, they turned to the one avenue on which you could always rely. They sought the aid of the gods, and hoped for the best. Did it work? Well, maybe. The famine must have ended sooner or later, because the city of Avaris, and the New Kingdom as a whole, survived for at least 50 years. Furthermore, those mass graves which show up in parts of the region disappear as well, and balance seems to have been restored. But what about the political balance? For the kings down in Ichitawi, this new kingdom was completely unacceptable. But could they do anything about it? The rebellion in the delta could have been a disaster for everyone involved. Egypt could have been plunged back into civil war, and the diseases afflicting the north could have spread to the south. In essence, the kingdom itself teetered on the edge of a catastrophic plunge into disorder. And it's to their credit that both kingdoms seem to have recognised this danger, and they soon came to an accommodation. Yakbim and his successors eventually came to dominate the entire delta. But the 13th dynasty seems to have kept control of its trade routes with Syria. Items bearing the names of 13th dynasty kings and viziers show up in the far north, and tell us that the Delta Kingdom did not try to isolate its southern neighbour. This was fortunate for both, because the South was in a dire situation.
0: And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Alberts redefines comfort. Visit allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's a l l b i r d dot code SUPER24.
1: By the time the Delta people established their new kingdom, the government of the 13th dynasty was in a shambles. Its kings were weak, short-lived, and did not achieve much of anything. So by the year 1700, it's pretty likely that power was not even really held by the king. They seem to be too short-lived, too anonymous, to have had any significant bearing on what was actually happening in the kingdom. Instead, some historians suggest that power was now being wielded by their courtiers, most specifically the country's vizier. Vizier, or chati in Egyptian, is a difficult term. I don't like it very much. It conjures up images of scheming Middle Eastern officials with talking parrots, or corrupt individuals manipulating the shahs and emperors of Persia or Turkey. Stereotypes, essentially, have tainted the word, and today one might associate the vizier of a country with a backwards, out-of-date mentality. But the Egyptian viziers were truly the administrative arm of the king. They represented his authority where he could not physically be present, and while they certainly gained great wealth and power in their lifetimes, during the Middle Kingdom it was rare for them to openly flaunt that power. They tended to observe decorum, and presented themselves as true servants of their kings. But there is one troubling factor about the 13th dynasty viziers we know more about them than we do about their quote-unquote masters. In fact, references to the viziers of Dynasty 13 survive throughout Egypt, and even as far away as Syria. We know about some of their careers, their families, and the ways that they were rewarded for their service. In fact, compared to the anonymous kings, they're practically celebrities of the time. There are some notable names among them, like the vizier Senusret Ankh, who managed the king's affairs around the time of Sobekhotep I. Senusret Ankh had one of those careers that started at the bottom and then worked its way to the top. He began his life as a royal scribe. A nice job, but not all that special. After paying his dues here, things began to take off. He ascended to the plum position of overseer of the fields, Now this job was cushy, it gave him direct oversight of royal farming estates, and he was probably able to enrich himself to a good degree. From there, it seems to have been a relatively short step to the vizierate, where he began to manage the country itself. Senusret Ankh was influential enough that one of his statues found its way to Syria, and the town of Ugarit. Whether it was a gift to some local king, or it was taken there later on in history, is not clear. But the distance that it travelled tells us that Senusaret Ankh gained a great reputation in Egypt, and had sufficient wealth to commission high-quality statues. The sort of high-quality statues you might want to take away. Not bad for someone who started as a lowly scribe. And compared to his king, Sobek Hotep, about whom we know almost nothing, it's especially impressive. Senusret Ankh started a trend which persisted throughout the 1700s of viziers gaining more power and publicity than their kings. For example, there's the vizier Ankhu, who came to power on the back of his kinship with a queen. Ankhu came from a prestigious family, and he found his way to the very centres of power. Once there, he commissioned stealers and statues at Abydos and Karnak, As a result, we have more references to Anku than we do the kings that he served. To top it all off, Anku then fathered two boys, each of whom went on to become the vizier in their own time. Named Ra-Seneb and Ii-Meru, they were both children of Anku who took the supreme power for themselves, in the process creating something of a mini-dynasty in the middle of the 18th century finally, we come to a vizier named I Iīmeru, who served under the illustrious king Sobekhotep IV. Sobekhotep IV was one of the few kings to rule for any significant length of time during the 13th dynasty. More significantly, Sobekhotep and his vizier Nefekare were able to work together to forge a strong reign with Sobekhotep holding onto the throne for a good ten years. Together, they commissioned new monuments in Thebes, where Sobekhotep had been born, and sent mining expeditions into the eastern desert. Finally, they began work on a great tomb, called the House of a Million Years. This tomb, located at Abydos, was rediscovered in 2014 by archaeologists from Egypt and the University of Pennsylvania. Although they initially attributed this tomb to Sobekhotep I, this has now been revised, and the archaeologists are pretty solid that it's the tomb of Sobekhotep IV. And it is an impressive structure. Built of limestone and originally topped by a small pyramid, the tomb is dominated by a sarcophagus, carved from a single, huge block of granite. The king's coffins would have been lowered into this from above, and then sealed in. I've loaded an image onto our website and Facebook page. You can see from the archaeologists standing around just how enormous this block of stone really is. This sarcophagus and the tomb in general was probably the work of Nefer Ka-Re, who, as the king's vizier, was responsible for the construction of his tomb and the furnishing of his burial. Well, it has to be said that all things considered, the vizier did an amazing job. But Sobekhotep IV and his vizier are a pair of rare collaborators in an era when kings came and went with alarming frequency. For many historians, the only sensible conclusion is that power rested in the hands of these officials, and that it was their work, not the king's, that gave the kingdom what stability and continuity it enjoyed. To their credit, they were able to preserve this, even in the face of open rebellion. So that was the situation in Egypt's two kingdoms, around the years 1700. Disunity, disease, famine and rebellion combined to create a rather unusual, but not overly catastrophic situation. With such difficulties plaguing different communities, it's really quite remarkable that the kingdoms stayed in the condition they did. Egyptians displayed remarkable resilience in the face of economic and political difficulties, and the artefacts they leave behind from this period show that in spades. In fact, some of their items are among the most beautiful ever produced in the country. From royal statues to immense wooden coffins and stone statues, the Egyptians working through the 13th and 14th dynasties were still producing some of their finest artistic work. With outstanding craftsmanship and a huge range of ideas to choose from, the artwork from this period tells us one thing loud and clear. The glory days of the middle kingdom might be gone but egyptians were not letting their culture slip into oblivion they were fortunate that their ancestors had produced a culture like this because egypt was now about to enter an age in which their insulated inward-looking existence was going to change forever no longer could they ignore the outside world because the outside world was coming to them and it was coming in the most disruptive way possible egypt was about to be invaded. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.